Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for lovers of the Hebrew Bible everywhere. I'm Dr. Tim McNinch from Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren from Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. This week, we are covering the first reading for 2 Kings 2, verses 1 through 12, and it is Transfiguration Sunday. If you're thinking gospel-y type stuff, that's coming from Mark 9, but my hunch is that Tim is going to dwell pretty securely in 2 Kings. Am I correct? You got it. You got it. Oh, cool. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I've basically uh, broken things down into a little help with context, little fun with the Hebrew, and then some preaching thoughts. Hebrew is always fun. So uh, context-wise, you, you're right. This is coming up in the lectionary on Transfiguration Sunday. And as it turns out, the lectionary usually pairs with the New Testament account of the Transfiguration of Jesus, one of those um, weird paranormal stories about mm-hmm. Moses or Elijah who are the two that appear with Jesus in his transfiguration. Mm. So this year in year B, it's Elijah. And uh, the story is, in 2 Kings, his, um, his, what, his, his ascension, translation <laughs> to the heavens, his disappearance, right? Go. And I think there's some significance there. All three of these characters, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, disappear at the mm. end of their lives. Mm. So I I sort of wonder if the New Testament transfiguration story might be commenting on the kind of company that Jesus keeps, (laughs) that he's as mysterious and transcendent as these great heroes from Israelite tradition who also vanished at the end of their lives. Mm. And to speculate even a little more, a little historical speculation here, (laughs) I wonder um, if this story and Mark is kind of an explanation for the ascension of Jesus. As the early Christian community spread the news about his resurrection, they must have encountered the question, so, well, where is he now? Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, this story of the transfiguration puts Jesus you know, in, in the company with other reputable figures who also disappeared. In any case, the, the Mark story does note at the end there that, that the disciples were charged to keep this experience a secret until mm. Jesus had been raised from the dead. So there is a kind of looking back on this event as something yeah. that helped explain something after the resurrection. Well, and I think, it, I think you know, if, if nothing else, preachers, take that little tidbit, because I, I can't tell you the number of times when I was in the parish preaching Transfiguration, because it comes around every single year, and you're like, so yeah, I know all the things, but why Elijah and Moses? Like, why those two guys? Mm-hmm. So that's just a little bit of a helpful tidbit, I think, on its own. Having said all that, (laughs) the Elijah story can, of course, be taken on its own merits. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to give preachers a a little bit of a handle on what's going on back in 2 Kings, especially if they decide that that's what they're going to preach from. Yeah, absolutely. Do it. So context-wise, this story is set in the mid-9th century BCE in Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And it lands between the tales about the reigns of King Ahaziah and King Jehoram Jehoram of Israel. Mm. In the Book of Kings, the annals of these kings are interwoven with these legends about these great prophets of the Lord. And this one is all about the succession from the prophet Elijah to uh, Elisha, Elisha, Mm. 
I'll probably say Elisha. I never know how to pronounce his name. Yeah. It's really too bad that their names didn't transliterate better into English because they're quite different in Hebrew and they sound exactly the same in English. Yeah, Eliyahu and Elisha. Yeah. Mm. The other uh, little tidbit to remember here is that in the version of the Bible that we read now, these stories are part of a larger history of Israel and Judah that's retold from the other side, historically speaking, the other side of the collapse of those kingdoms. Yeah. Uh, preachers might remember this section of the Bible referred to as the Deuteronomistic history. Mm. And this is uh, talking about a vantage point looking back on the histories uh, where the kings of Israel are described by and large as corrupt, mm. morally and religiously corrupt. And that the true representatives of the will of God were these prophets, the ones who often spoke out against the corrupt monarchs. So like many of those prophetic legends, this one emphasizes the prophet's closeness with God, sort of like a superhuman quality Mm. and this sort of paranormal experience. And, you know, I think that might be context that's a little bit important from a genre point of view. The the point of such legends is not that, uh, quote-unquote, they happened. Hmm. Just as in the New Testament, the point of the transfiguration story is not that simply that it happened. Yeah. These events may or may not have happened. The point is that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> These legends are told in order to communicate something about the characters that are involved. In Mark, I think it's about Jesus's authority as a divine spokesperson, and that hmm. comes through uh, loud and clear in the legend about his transfiguration. Back here in Second Kings, I think the the characteristic that is trying to bring forward is about the divine source of the prophetic calling mm-hmm. for Elijah and Elisha. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to focus it in on like what's the point here. Did you find the Hebrew lifting up that message in any particular way? Well, there are a few really interesting things going on in the Hebrew here. And they don't necessarily bring out the legendary genre of the story, but they do help us get a little bit of a handle on what's going on in the story. Cool. So one really sort of apropos of nothing, I just I just like it. There's a couple spots in verses 3 and 4 where uh, there's all sorts of prophets just sort of roaming the land, right? And they come out and announce to Elisha that his master, Elijah, is going to be taken from him. And he responds with these two words, Yadati I know, just shut up. <laughs> like, he doesn't want to hear it. I think the NRSV says something like, um, have silence or be, keep be silent. Keep quiet. Yeah, yes. keep quiet or something Yes, like I that. know, be silent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Yadati. Yeah, shut it. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, uh, more significantly, in verse 8, there is this moment where Elijah takes his mantle, rolls it up, and hits the Jordan River, and it splits, and it says that the, the two of them crossed on dry ground. In Hebrew, charava, dry ground. And this is the same word at the same river in mm-hmm. a similar scene uh, from Joshua 3. Mm-hmm. where uh, the people of Israel cross into the land on dry ground. Yeah. So there's something going on here of a sort of patterning of the miraculous elements of the story with some of the, the great wonders of God that had happened before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In particular, the parting of waters, crossing on dry ground. These prophets are stepping into a heritage, a tradition of divinely ordained leaders. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting when you say that, because I hadn't really put together the thought that so Moses and Elijah are kind of the callbacks at Jesus's transfiguration. But here at Elijah's ascension, there's almost a callback to Moses yeah. in this story. So that mm-hmm. sort of like builds upon itself throughout the history. And Joshua, yeah. as you said, too. Yeah, Moses and Joshua. And, and yeah. just to be clear, the word here, harava, is the word that's used for dry ground that the people crossed over the Jordan River. There's a slightly different word used in Exodus 14. Oh, okay. Um, nice. Okay. Yabasha, I think. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is often confusing is uh, in verse 9, where Elisha requests a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Mm-hmm. For a long time, I took that to mean like he was saying, let me be twice the prophet that you were. You know, oh, <laughs> I want to yeah. be twice as good, <laughs> twice as powerful. I want a double portion of your spirit. And that's interesting, but I don't think that's what's going on in the, the Hebrew there. He asks for pish naim, which is really weird, sort of a double mouth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two mouthfuls, <laughs> I don't know, of, of your spirit. But that's the that's the terminology that's used in the language about inheritance. Oh, sure. Okay. So in a family, the eldest son receives double the share that the other siblings get in their inheritance. Yeah. So really what Elisha is asking for here is to be the the eldest, you know, to yeah. to be the one who is the successor. You know what? I wonder if that helps explain the presence of these sort of meandering prophets that you were talking mm-hmm. about at the beginning. Are they also hoping to be the firstborn? And because they're all around, Elisha has to say, look, just so we're clear, Elijah, like I'm getting the double mouthful, right? Like, <laughs> do you think that's one of the things going on here? Yeah, I think that's totally what's going on. There's oh. this, these bands of prophets that are roaming around who all have some sort of connection to Elijah. And here, Elisha is asking to be sort of set apart uniquely as the successor Hmm. to Elijah. Very helpful. Cool. What else came out of the Hebrew? Well, one other thing I should confess, there's that scene at the at the end where, you know, you've got the chariots of fire and the horses of fire and the whirlwind and all this kind of good stuff. And uh, my whole life, I pictured that um, (laughs) as sort of like a, a... a cab pulls up, right? This fiery (laughs) taxi cab. And Elijah steps in and it drives him away, right? These (laughs) these chariots of fire. A hot ride. Yeah. But actually, um, that's not what's happening here. Mm -hmm. So the the chariots of fire and the horses of fire are not transportation vehicles. Yeah. (laughs) They actually represent a kind of um, military force. It's like a, like ca- calling an Uber and having a tank roll up. <laughs> <laughs> right. But what they do in the scene is that they pull up and separate Elisha mm. from Elijah. Mm. And it's like this barrier between them, a flaming barrier of military vehicles pulled up mm. at the ready. <laughs> like, mm. do not cross this line. <laughs> oh, wow. And behind the line of fiery chariots and horses... The wind blows and blows Elijah away. Mm. The The word there, se'ara, in Hebrew, it gets translated whirlwind. And you sort of picture like a, a dust devil or a, yeah. or a tornado or something, right? Yeah. But it just means a really strong wind. It's the same word that's in Jonah, you know, when the, the storm, the gale that yeah. comes upon the sea is a, is a se'ara. Mm. So this, this wind blows Elijah away. 
And then evidently the vision of, of chariots and horses, you know, eventually disappears. Mm. Just one more little Hebrew tidbit. And that's that after Elijah blows away, what's left in his place is this aderet, mantle. And aderet comes from the root adar, which has to do with glory or splendor or nobility. Mm. This aderet is basically like a robe or a mantle that somebody would wear to signify their high status. And mm. so this is the the piece of clothing that represents Elijah's um, special authority as God's anointed prophet, right? And it seems to have some power attached to it too, right? It, it gets rolled up um, maybe to resemble a staff like Moses's, mm. and it strikes the Jordan, um, which leads to the parting, both on the way in to this um, land, this mysterious land across the Jordan, and on the way back out, as we find out later in the story. Hmm. So the, the passing of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha becomes sort of uh, an idiom, right? The, mm. the passing, picking up the mantle. Uh, yeah. I, I, as far as I know, this is the origin of that idiom, this story mm. right here. Well, and it's interesting because it has a doublet, right? The slightly different story of the passing of the mantle where they meet for the first time and Elijah just sort of throws the mantle at him and then runs. And Elisha <laughs> has to like trot to catch up with him. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the more formal uh, version of that story. Yeah, for sure. You know, as people are are considering the story, one thing I should have mentioned before, really you have to read a little bit past what the lectionary gives. You have to mm. go at least a couple verses further through verse 14. Otherwise, we just sort of stop in the middle of the scene with Elisha wailing <laughs> that he <laughs> that his master's gone. He's just sitting there on the on the on the east side of the Jordan crying. <laughs> yeah. But this is a, a very patterned story. Biblical mm-hmm. scholars have taken a careful look at this and seen a, a pretty clear chiastic structure, sort mm-hmm. of, um, you know, it sort of walks into this moment when Elijah is taken away and then walks back out in a similar pattern. Yeah. And, and we see that with Elisha picking up the mantle, striking the Jordan just like uh, Elijah had, and it parts again, and he walks back out and back into the land. Now he's the... Um, you know, the important prophet to, to represent God. Yeah, I would, preachers, I would definitely take Tim up on that suggestion. I think if you don't, it's just, it's like cutting off the story two thirds of the way through and there's no real necessity to end there. So just throw those couple of verses in. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe that's, that's sort of a preaching pitfall is cutting the story off too soon. Do you have any others to come to mind? Yeah, I didn't really have a lot of pitfalls for this sure. one. I felt like it was a, a, a not a, a particularly precarious passage. No, so <laughs> perhaps not. Uh, <laughs> we don't get to the she bears, which would be a little bit more of a pitfall. No, that'd be more story. fun. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> no, this has this has plenty of good stuff in it, and and not a whole lot of um, you know places to get too far uh, out of mm-hmm. line. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I do think it has some potential for preaching, and uh, I would bring out that the theme of this story in Second Kings is really um, the, the passing of the baton or the passing of the mantle mm. of spiritual leadership from one generation to the next. Mm. And in the way this story goes, a key element might be the fact that even though Elisha seems to be the ideal successor and he's sort of been groomed for that along the way, when the moment comes, Elijah himself refuses to make that call. Oh. When Elisha presses him, begs him for the right to be the successor, Elijah basically responds, no, that's not up to me. 
That's up to God. So if you, uh, if when I'm taking from you, you get the gift of prophetic sight and you see me going, then that means you've got it. If not, you don't. Huh. And that might not translate into, you know, every leadership transition everywhere. But I think there is a strong principle here that spiritual leadership isn't about, um, you know, in the first place about dynasties or Mm -hmm. personal ambition or handpicked successors, that it comes down to God's gifting and God's calling. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably significant in this story. And I think that could be the heart of a really good sermon. I do too. What's so fun about Elijah Eliyahu's story is that he is so not humble at the beginning of his tenure as a prophet. Like he's just bombastic and kind of has to be taken down a peg or two by God before he can really learn to be a prophet. Mm -hmm. And here at the end, he's really digested that lesson in a way such that, you know, when Elisha wants to put the power on him, Elijah knows his role. And I think there's a freedom in that. When we're talking about spiritual leadership, it really, we really look to God to be the one bringing us places or bringing us people. And we just sort of step back and try to do our best to respond. Yeah. And, you know, aside from preaching, any any of you out there who are um, like elder statesmen, elder stateswomen, preacher pastors, right? There's something here about uh, when, when you begin to think about what comes after you retire or move on or something like that. Really what's important here is the call of God. Yeah. And that perhaps your role... Mm may not be to be the, you know, kingmaker yeah. in your congregation. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. One last thing I would I would add, um, if, if you're interested in tying this into a sermon that focuses on Jesus's transfiguration, I think it might be helpful to glean from this story back in 2 Kings that really it's Elisha, not Elijah, who gets transfigured or transformed huh. in this story. I mean, Elisha goes from being uh, like a tag-along, you know, getting Elijah's coffee and whatnot, to to being this powerful prophet of God. And it's not because of how great he was, but simply because God called him to it. Oh, wow. That emphasis in this story uh, about Elisha, Elisha, might draw our attention in the gospel story uh, from the paranormal transfiguration of Jesus, which is super important, But to also attend to how the disciples get transformed Mm -hmm. or transfigured in this momentous event, Mm -hmm. especially as they reflect on it after Jesus has gone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we might ask ourselves that same question. How does our remembrance of Jesus's transcendence, one who belongs in the company of such great figures as Moses and Elijah, how does that transform us? Mm -hmm. How does that give us? confidence to pursue the work that Jesus calls us to, the work of justice and love and reconciliation. When the world's so unjust and hateful and divided, how does Jesus's transfiguration transfigure us for that task? Oh, man, such good thoughts. I have I have dealt with this story so many times, and I feel like there were at least three or four times in this that I was like, I've never thought of that before. I've never thought of that before. <laughs> Uh, and I just, I really love that idea that it is not Eliyahu who is transformed. It is Elisha. I think that um, you could really build a sermon of just sort of sitting in it and then turn about two thirds of the way through and focus the attention really on Elisha and then move out to where your God moves in our lives. I think that'd be an awesome sermon, folks. I'd want to hear it. There you go. <laughs> 
Well, that'll bring us to the end of this episode, I think. But well done, sir. And for all of you listening, we will be back next week with more tools and tips for preaching from the Hebrew Bible. First Reading is produced by Tim and me, along with Rosie Canival and Paul Asa. We keep all of our back episodes in a searchable feed on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can interact with us there or find us on social media. If you want to help us nudge the omniscient algorithm, write us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you really want to make our day, help sponsor the work that we do with a donation or a purchase of some merchandise, which you can find on our website. Thank you all for spending this time with us. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy preaching.